Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today it's my great pleasure to have with us Jacob Schromp. Jacob is a Paralympic powerlifter and he represented the USA at the Tokyo 2020 Games and came sixth place in the 107 plus kilo division. Welcome to the program, Jake. Thanks, Liz. I appreciate you having me here. Uh, can you tell us more about yourself? Give us a bit of history and your impairment and how you got into powerlifting. Yeah, so um, I'm 33 years old. I went to Penn State University while I was a, I was a sophomore, just got out of the finals. Summer was starting between um, semesters, and I had a uh, work accident when I was working for our family business. I was driving a dump truck, exited the highway, it was a downhill off-ramp, went to hit the brakes. The brakes uh, weren't there for me. They, they had failed. So I had a work accident. The truck flipped and landed on top of me. Oh. So that's how I lost my leg. So I'm a right above knee amputee and took a semester off to uh, have skin grafts, uh, get a prosthetic, get a running leg, learn how to walk again, all that fun stuff. So I took a semester off and I returned. That was My accident was in May 2008. And in January, I returned to school at Penn State and um, finished my degree there. Mm-hmm. I work full time ever since ever since 2011 for for our family business still um, as a landscape designer. So I um, design outdoor spaces, whether that's trees and plants around buildings and homes or patios and things like that. I uh, got into power. Li- I had always liked lifting weights. And I got into powerlifting at Penn State as part of a program they had for Paralympic athletes. And from there, they kind of funded me to go to some national events. And I qualified for the national team back in 2009, 2010, and had been on the national team ever since. So that's just a brief, real brief overview of my sort of background. So that was a pretty quick transition into from your accident to the time that you got onto the national team? Yes. Penn State has a program called Ability Athletics. So it's endowed with a scholarship and funded basically like a varsity sport would be like football, American football or uh, soccer or baseball, basketball, whatever. I had full access to all of their facilities and coaches and they would pay for me to travel for competitions. Mm -hmm. And and that's just all in in an effort to enhance the student experience there at the school. So it was, I I never went to, I never knew that they had that program. I never needed it. Mm. But when I had my accident and, you know, life changed, I was very blessed to to be going to a school that had such a program already in place that could really kind of propel me for, for my sports career. That's awesome. And so you're in the 107 plus kilo division for your weight category in Tokyo. Is that a natural weight for you or did you find you had to do some fairly big work to achieve that weight category? Well, so I'm actually in the under 107 kilogram class, which is a... Sorry, my apologies. Uh, yeah, no, no worries. It's just a big, in terms of the athletes that are in the in the plus category, I have a, a lot to compete against there. So it's a little bit better in my category. But, well, I'll start off by saying, the, you know, I, I narrowly missed, I was a little bit young, but I narrowly missed qualifying for London, for the London Games. And then I was even closer for Rio and missed out on that. But each, each at the end of each 
quadrennial, I had stalled out on my performance. I, I just got stuck at, a, at my at what weight mm-hmm. I could press and I was just outside the top eight in the world. Right. So that was as a result of, of starving myself to stay in a weight class. So after 2016, I just started just basically not worrying about what weight class I was in and just going to where I felt strong. And so the more I got into it, I found that I naturally was comfortable around 100, and ki- 100 kilos body weight. Mm-hmm. But in order to be the best in your body weight, you have to be typically higher in the weight class so that you can put on even more muscle because everybody else is sort of doing that that thing. So I am naturally around 100 kilos or that's where my body wants to be. But I push my calories up to around 105 kilos for performance sake. Right. And so were you able to sit consistently around that 105 for the lead into Tokyo? Yeah. Yeah. So I had always been for the last three years, I have with eating the amount that I do, I've been able to kind of hover around 102, 103 kilos. 107 is a weight class, but because of my amputation level, they add two two kilos for my body weight. Um, so really 105 is the most I can weigh in at. Right. So I was hovering around 102, 103 for the last three years and yeah. still getting better. But as the last six months leading up to Tokyo, trying to qualify and then eventually qualifying, it was sort of like all hands on deck to make sure that I weighed in as high as I possibly could because my strength would go up as a result. So mm-hmm. I'll be honest, like I, I was... It's very easy for me to put on weight. I've always had a ferocious appetite, but mm-hmm. I was tired of eating after Tokyo because it's it's just the job. I mean, I'm I was doing six meals a day, so yeah. it was it was a lot of work. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so it's it's you know, I think some people are sometimes jealous of those who have to actually eat more than what they physically can, but they don't realize that that's actually just as much hard work as trying to get weight down sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when you said before that you were sort of starving yourself, were you in a lower weight division at that point? Yeah. So I was in the 80 kilogram class for for London. Oh, man. And then in Rio, I was in the 88 kilogram class. And then in 2016 and 17, early on in the quad, I was in the 97 kilogram and that's where I was starting to really feel comfortable and know that I, as long as I was able to have a little bit more body fat and eat a little bit more calories that my strength was skyrocketing. But, um, I, I jumped from 97 to 107, Mm -hmm. just the competition level was about the same. So I, I just kind of told myself, get a little heavier than you want, but your strength should go up as a result. Mm -hmm. And, I would be a little bit more competitive in that class. So that's what I did. Cool. And obviously that worked because you came sixth at the game. Well, firstly, you qualified and it's pretty challenging to qualify, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's basically top eight in the world automatically per weight class. Mm-hmm. And then there was one wild card slot. So I technically, I qualified on the wild card slot, but I was ranked ninth in the world going into it. But sort of like when the pandemic hit, Mm-hmm. I was, I think, 13th. So I went from like a year in a year. Yeah, basically a year. I went from 13th to 6th. And I was one one miss away in my last attempt from fourth place. Wow. So the last two years, I've made a lot of progress 
since dialing in on a lot of things. Wow, that's incredible. That that definitely, after so many years in the sport, to have that trajectory in the final year, you must have been pretty proud of the efforts that you put in and, and the fact that you stuck with it for such a long time. Yeah, yeah, super proud. I mean, part of me kicks myself from being stubborn and not jumping weight. If I could do it all over again 10 years ago, I just would have went to whatever body weight my I naturally felt and my strength would have come along faster. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it uh, some of that heartbreak of not qualifying for the games allowed me to double down on my focus for Tokyo and r- really make sure that I that I got in and and in the last year or so I've made even more progress that so it, it's been a fun ride and and I you know I want to get better yet yeah and so what type of training were you doing in in say that last 12 months what would a typical week's training have looked like for you so with power sports you you think that you're in the gym 24 7 and you're really not um you, we work with such heavy loads that break down your your muscles and and fibers and things like that so i'm only in the gym depending on how close i am to a competition i'll say four times a week it really it was three to four times a week for most of the workouts were maybe around an hour my my heavy bench day would be maybe closer to an hour and a half or two hours so not a tremendous maybe four to five hours a a week in the gym. Mm -hmm. And my training has been largely the same for the past five years or so. Mm -hmm. A lot of my progress came from focusing on all the things outside the gym with a lot more intent. And that was like working closer on my nutrition, working with a sports psychologist. And also in the six month, uh, yeah, six to eight months leading up to Tokyo, mm-hmm. I was doing physio once a week. And that really, uh, I had no idea how much that would improve my recovery and my workouts kind of took off as a result of that. Mm. Yeah, I think sometimes people miss out on, I think it's all about training and and maybe sleeping, but they, they miss out on all the little bits that actually put that together uh, like a regular massage that just helps the muscles to recover and eating the right types of foods and things like that so when you say you focused on your nutrition a bit more what things were you looking at in particular so for the past excuse me five years or so i i've been meal prepping had a pretty good grasp on nutrition event you know eventually you kind of got it but excuse me with about two years ago our team hired our own sports nutritionist to work us work with us specifically. Mm-hmm. And I thought I knew a lot, or at least maybe compared to other athletes on the team, but I, I quickly realized that I didn't know as much as I thought. So yeah. um, once I, I've always just been on the attitude, especially knowing that like, I want to give everything I can for the Tokyo games to qualify that if you told me that eating cow manure was going to make me stronger, I would eat cow manure. Um, like it's, <laughs> You know, as long as it's legal and not going to be performance enhancing drugs or something like that, I would do whatever, whatever it took. So um, I, we really just dialed in on a, on a lot of things and I I leaned out a lot easier while still keeping a little bit of body fat that I need to be strong, Mm -hmm. but I was leaning out. I would, I had great energy for day in, day out. My workouts were just had a lot more focus because of that energy 
and we were tracking everything that went into my body, fluid or, or solid. And mm-hmm. it really just kind of, once we gave it some time, that, that momentum just kind of like snowballed and, and mm-hmm. performance went up. And you were still working full-time for the family business over that time. Is that work fairly manual in its essence? No, no. Well, so for some, a lot of the positions at our company, it is manual, manual, more manual, but my position is more Mm sales-based. So I'm meeting with clients and doing communication with like a lot of email and drafting designs on the computer and things like that. So that was another big aspect of, I, I haven't, I haven't gotten it totally right, but I've got, I made great strides and that was sort of stress management Mm -hmm. and my work, my performance got a lot better from that because I, it's our family business. I'll take over someday. Probably we have about a hundred employees. So we're fairly, we're Mm. pretty successful business. And I I care about pretty much anything. I, I I don't do much. I'm pretty, a pretty boring person, but what I do invest my time in. I want to do it really well. So I work a ton of hours and, and try to do a really good job at work. And I average, yeah. uh, I mean, I was averaging like 60 mm-hmm. hours a week, basically at, at work and then trying to train on top of that. Wow. And I never, I needed to, to do better at drawing a line between work and personal life and then training. Um, so working with our sports psychologist or sports psychologist worked with me on just sort of stress management. And that that really helped me yeah. figure out ways to not let work bleed into my training and my workouts were a lot better as a result. Mm. It's so important that work-life balance and, and the total stress load that goes into your training is is not just the training but the accumulation of everything else. So can you give us an idea of what a typical day's food intake would have looked like in that lead up, how you managed to dial in, like just walk us through what a typical day would have looked like. Yeah. So I wake up about a uh, quarter to five, 4.45 AM. I'm usually working. I just live right down the street from work. So I'm usually working by 5 AM and then I will work until about typically, th- well, 3 PM, but I'm doing, mm-hmm. I'm doing my meals. I, so I just take containers that are already meal prepped and I just, I just, take them with me on the road or at the office, wherever I'm at. And so I'm eating basically 7, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 2 p.m., 4 p.m., training at like 4.30, and then eating uh, my sixth meal. So if I'm training, say, from 4.30 to 6, then I'm, I'm eating by 6 or 6.30 p.m. for my last meal. Yep. And that's that's typically that last meal is the only meal that I make during the day that day. So my first five meals of the day are some combination of brown rice protein, whether that's steak, chicken, or plant-based. I do half my meals plant-based. So about half my meals plant-based, a quarter Mm -hmm. steak and a quarter chicken, something like that. Um, And then I have, so I have uh, brown rice, my protein, Mm -hmm. beans, Mm -hmm. and then a bunch of veggies, that's five meals a day. Then my sixth meal is generally like three scrambled eggs mm-hmm. with a slice of cheese, spinach, sliced tomato or diced tomato. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a piece of 
toast or something like that, or a glass of chocolate milk. Mm-hmm. That was when I was trying to gain weight, like 3,500 calories a day was main- mm-hmm. maintenance. So like 4,000 was what I was trying to do to put on weight. Wow. And were you adding some extra oil in to get some of the calories up or how we, you know, was it just the volume of food that you were working on? Just the volume of food. I, I, I've been told sometimes by previous people about oils and things like that, but it's pretty easy for me to eat the food. And I, it's very bland what I make, but I, I, I enjoy it. I have no problem with it. So I didn't, I never got into sort of like some of the tricks that you can do to get some extra calories without really noticing it. I, I just kind of stuck to my, to my main foods. And were you drinking mostly water or what, what sort of fluids would you usually drink? Yeah. So I would do coffee in the morning, like 20 ounces. So I don't know. I guess you guys aren't familiar with ounces and I'm not sure what that would be in liters. About 600 mils. Yeah. Um, so I would do a couple, like two cups of coffee and everything else would be water. And then I would do, I was doing chocolate milk, like regular milk, but with going more plant-based or at least partially plant-based, I would do some sort of like either almond or soy chocolate milk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that I wasn't, I wasn't drinking any, I don't do soda. I don't do tea don't really drink alcohol much. So it was just water, coffee, and some milk. Great. Awesome. And would you say that your energy requirements, I mean, I know it's a number of years ago now, so 2008, do you feel like your energy requirements changed after your accident? Do you feel as though the energy demands of walking with a prosthetic leg ended up balancing out perhaps the small amount of energy requirement lost from having not got that limb? I would say maybe all things equal. Yeah. I mean, I've heard different, different ratios, but people have said you will use 50% or a hundred percent more energy walking as an above knee amputee with your, with your prosthesis as you would being an able-bodied person. I definitely feel that. So mm-hmm. I track my step. I try to track my steps in the course of a day and I like to be at least 5,000 if I can. I feel like that's a fairly like, I think able-bodied people maybe shoot for 10,000 steps a day. I I try to do at least five, which for an amputee, I mean, Mm -hmm. there are plenty more athletic amputees than me, but for, as an amputee that I feel like that's pretty good. If I'm doing that and trying to work the hours I do and train, it's a pretty tiring day. So Mm -hmm. usually after, after training, I'm just getting a shower and eating and, and, and kind of just, taking my leg off and, and relaxing collapsing yeah <laughs> yeah Col- collapsing yeah. for the rest of the day yeah and how does your your amputation impact on on you in other ways in your day-to-day do you get much in the way of phantom limb pain uh, do you get many issues with that interface between your prosthetic limb and your res- residual limb do you get many friction wounds or anything like that yeah. Yeah. So I, I am very blessed that I don't get much phantom sensation or phantom pain. I'll say if I get something, it's usually once every mm-hmm. two or three months, I might get it. It seems to be at night when I'm trying to sleep and it's going to feel like a electronic shock or an electric shock through my residual limb. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like I'm getting shocked every like 10 seconds and it makes it hard to fall asleep. Of course, eventually that goes away. That's very rare. That's only a couple of times a year. It's just sensation otherwise, or maybe just a really spastic, like random spastic shock. So I don't have much with that. If I 
have maybe close to 10,000 steps a day for several days in a row, I'm going to develop some level of sore or rash between where my uh, socket meets my my residual limb and, and kind of like groin area. Mm-hmm. And then that makes it very hard to walk. So it kind of, I've, I found a sweet spot of maybe five to 7,000 steps a day is what I can, I can recover from. Mm-hmm. Besides that, uh, the only thing that has really made a disruption during my normal life, besides just things happening a little bit slower, is if I if I do some rapid weight gain and I outgrow my socket, it becomes very uncomfortable. And that only happened really once. Mm-hmm. That was um, when I gained a bunch of weight after 2012. After the London, not qualifying for London, I went up a weight class pretty quick. Yep. Uh, actually, went up a couple weight classes and then came down, but. I was on crutches for a couple months before they could get me a, a larger socket. Right. So besides that, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate as an amputee where, um, yeah, things things will be a little bit slower or I drive with my left foot and, and kind of just flip my leg out of the way. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I'm not dis- disrupted too much as a result of it. Okay. And with the meal prep that you do, do you tend to do that standing or seated? Standing. Yeah, I try to mm-hmm. I try to do everything standing that I can. It's just in the, at the end of the day when everything's done that I'm I'm taking my leg off and just relaxing. Yeah, it's just that we I've had times in the past when I've had amputee athletes in the kitchen, for example. There is a certain level of fatigue of just the standing and walking around and, and prepping prepping your food. Do you feel as though you just got used to that and and that was part of your day? To some degree. Yeah. I mean, my back does get a little tight typically from like, I would rather walk for, it takes me about two hours to meal prep. Um, I just did that this afternoon. Mm. I would rather walk for two hours sometimes than stand for two hours uh, or stand or not, or kind of like shuffle your feet for two hours. But I've just tried my best to, mm-hmm. everyone's different and everyone has different uh, situations, but I try my best to wear my leg as much as I can it's a slippery slope with me. If I start taking my leg off for everything or for one thing, and then it feels like there, there's a tendency to want to always have it off. And I need to, I need to be able to work driving all around on job sites and meeting with clients for 12 hours a day sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, and so I want to, I want to try to always maintain that ability. Mm -hmm. And was there something that you learned in particular in the preparation for Tokyo or even at Tokyo, was there anything in particular that kind of stands out in your mind as something that you learned from that? I would say my my work with uh, our our sports psychologist has been very instrumental in, in a lot of things that I eventually kind of realized in sport. And then also I'm trying to carry over to, to everyday life as well. Uh, you know, I, I used to see these athletes that were far better than me and kind of put them up on a pedestal, so to speak, and, and kind of be like, well, I don't know that I could ever get to that point. And they're a lot better. And then, mm-hmm. and then eventually through just kind of rephrasing how, or, or being cognizant of what's going through your, the dialogue that's going through my mind, I realized, sort of realized how much negativity or self doubt was that was in there, which I think it to some degree is sort of natural, but I, I started being very cognizant and mm-hmm. deliberate on how I would speak in my mind during those like conversations uh, or just random dialogue. And then all of a sudden I, I was just kind of like, well, they're just like everybody else. And you know, some, you're going to go to these competitions and somebody's going to win. Like why, why couldn't it be me? Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of like confidence that came about really started to 
manifest. It's, I started to really dial that in in the in the couple months, six months leading up. Like basically, all of 2021 was a huge transformation, mm-hmm. and my performance level like skyrocketed as a result of that. And, mm-hmm. and that was something that I was really starting to to get the hang of once we got to Tokyo. Fabulous. And did you enjoy the Tokyo experience? Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. A lot of stress, a lot going on, but I thought the people people from Japan did an amazing job making it feel very special despite the pandemic. They were so amazing and inviting and friendly and helpful. The experience, I had this very grand image in my mind of what it was going to be like and it it still exceeded that for me. So I, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a great time. It was, it was, it was something definitely that I'll remember for a long while. Fantastic. And would you say now, because you're not training specifically at the moment, you're having a little bit of a, a break to focus on family. How much is your energy intake now changed? You said that when you were trying to get your weight up, you were focusing around three and a half, four thousand calories. Where do you think you're at at the moment? just in in reference to that? Well, I'm still training and I'm still training very hard. Like I have, um, I'm doing some able body competitions and like next month, for example. Mm -hmm. So I'm, my, my training is still super focused. I mean, it's, it's basically like nothing has changed except for, I'm just not going to travel out of the country. Like I was doing nonstop so that when our baby comes, I can, I can actually be around more and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's certain competitions that I would, I would need to miss, and that was going to take me off the pathway for Paris for our sport. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like scratching this quad and just focusing on family, like I said. But my, I mean, I'm my training is exactly the same. I've gotten much stronger since Tokyo already. My calories, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not quite as high. Like I'm just maintaining weight. So I'm around like 3,500 right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, just trying to keep my body weight just a little lower. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not like super lean or super skinny, but, but just a couple pounds makes a big difference. And I feel, I feel pretty good with, as a result of that. Yeah. In the back of my mind, I'm wondering how many fridges and freezers you have in your house to store all of this food. <laughs> uh, just a regular fridge, just a regular fridge. I just have these like um, rectangular, uh, not very tall meal prep containers and yep. I just stuff them and I, I go through like stack and yeah, stack, they, they stack, <laughs> they stack very well pretty much the, with my wife and mm-hmm. I the the only thing that's in our fridge is my meals and some some vegetables and some eggs and that's about it like it's it's just all meal prep so it's it fits pretty well Hopefully there's a bit of food for your wife. Yeah, no, she does. Um, she doesn't eat nearly as much, so it doesn't take up hardly any room. <laughs> but we don't, we don't, we don't like snack much. It's just yep. it, the Most meals that we're going to have, and that's it. So yep. there's not any like extra stuff. And how often do you do? You said it took you two hours to do your meal prep. How often do you do that? Once a week, or do you do that every couple of days? I just do it once a week. So I meal prep for <laughs> Monday through Friday, basically. And then on the weekends, we do eat out pretty much a lot of meals, not every meal, but a lot of meals. But we're just going to places that are super healthy and and have like whole foods or or less processed in them and things like that. So yeah, Monday through Friday is a complete regimen. And then we have like our favorite um, healthy restaurants in town that we go to for like lunch and dinner on the weekends. Mm. And the plant-based foods, was that something that you've always incorporated or was that something that was increasing over the last period of time? 
No, I, I, um, to be honest, I would be one that would scoff at it and make fun of it and, and not give it any time of day. I could see, per- in my mind, I saw purpose for like an endurance athlete, but not a strength athlete. I had seen a documentary and it got me intrigued and I brought it up to her nutritionist. And it was only after that that she said, well, you know, let's give it a shot and see what you think. And to be honest, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I don't have, I, I had no, in- I liked it, but I didn't have, I, I still like steak. I still like chicken. So it was very good to vary my proteins. And so we were doing, a, uh, I would do um, like tofu, falafel, and tempeh. <laughs> and that was just extra, that, that they were protein substitutes for me in soy milk, but I really enjoyed it. And I <laughs> got some meat in bulk since Tokyo. So I'm kind of working through that. Yeah. But once I get through that, I'll get back to my to my plant based meals. Mm-hmm. And did you feel as though you felt any different with more plant based foods in there? Yeah, I, I yes, I I did, um, and and do. I I felt like I had less inflammation at times, and it was easy. I I felt very full, but the the plant based also has less calories. I would say, yeah. or it seems like they have less calories, so it was harder for me. Like. It was easy for me for me to lean out with the plant base, which was a good thing. I, I like that, and yeah, I just felt like more energy, less puffy, like less less inflammation, mm-hmm. and just kind of like a little bit better overall. I if if I'm not eating enough greens, I also feel the same sort of way. And mm-hmm. so since I haven't been doing as much plant based late, lately, I've been just making sure I eat a, a ton of greens and, yeah. and kind of still feel the same benefits. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I mean the the plant based options do tend to be more high in fiber and low in the energy density, so you feel full before you've maybe got the same amount of calories as you would do in meat. So that kind of right. makes sense as to you know why you can lean out a little bit without sacrificing the total amount of protein that you're consuming. Right. Wow. Interesting. Certainly been quite the journey for you. Can you give us any idea of some recommendations that you give to practitioners? So whether that's sports psychologist or whether it's nutritionist or physical therapists who are working with para-athletes and specifically with powerlifting, any specific recommendations you give to them? Hmm. That's a good question. So with sports psychology, I, I just... I just always try to be as honest and like, I I mean, I just try to be as honest as possible on what I'm feeling and, and, and things like that. And that has suited me well with like physio and physical therapy. Same thing. If I, you know, being a power athlete, you're always trying to, you're thinking about being strong 24 seven. And so if you have these little twinges and tweaks in your muscles it's very easy to be like, oh, I feel great. I feel great. I feel great. But I, I try to be very honest with where something felt like, you know, I'm paying for a service and it's benefiting me. I, I ought to be as forthright as possible on what might be a little tight because we can nip it in the bud there and take care of it. And then I can be even better for next week rather than letting something drag out and maybe get a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. Those are, that's really what I found is just trying to be as honest about everything in my situation, because the more the professional knows, they can use all that information to make good judgment calls. And ultimately, that's going to benefit me if they can make accurate decisions on what's best for for my recovery or for my training or for my uh, mental practice and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you feel as though the, the practitioners that, you're, that you saw, did they have a, a good solid knowledge 
or did they have to learn something from you in terms of how specifically to apply their skills for you? No, no. I mean, I would say the the professional that maybe needed to that maybe it would be hardest to transfer from everyday practice to maybe a power lifter was like physical therapy for physio. Mm -hmm. But my, my physical therapist is a longtime friend and she had been, she had worked with team USA in Atlanta Mm -hmm. um, back in 96 and had been around Paralympians and had been around me as an amputee and a power lifter for a long time. So luckily I had her as my connection and, and there wasn't much that I needed to really explain to her. But that would probably be the hardest thing out of the professionals that I use. I I don't know, like for powerlifting, or at least this is my opinion, for powerlifting and strength, I I don't feel like I I have, I'm an expert in nutrition. So I I don't, I I feel like I'm all ears for a nutritionist to just tell me what I should be doing and I just follow it. And and there's a a certain peace of mind there where Mm -hmm. I didn't think that my, my, my uh, disability got in the way or our sport was too specialized that they couldn't help me. I, I just enjoyed being, being a patient or, or being their client and just listening and, and obeying. And that was pretty, pretty nice. Yeah. And I love the fact that you think that, or you thought beforehand that you had a pretty good handle on your nutrition, but you were still able to gain a lot from actually having that work relationship with the, with your nutritionist and, and responding to their advice. Yeah. I was, I, I would say looking back, I was very good at the macros, but I, I was overlooking so much of the micronutrients. And once we started making sure that we were hitting on all of those and eating certain things throughout the day that would just make sure that I got them. It was amazing how much better I felt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Jake, it's been really interesting talking to you and, and getting to know about your background. Thank you very much for your time. I usually finish off the, the, the podcast with asking my guests what their favorite food is. So Jake, what's your favorite food? Uh, I would say, I mean, just first thing that comes to mind is steak. I've always just enjoyed steak. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you said that you've you've got a as you've got a stack of red meat in your freezer. Is that is that steak? Is that beef or or? Have yeah, you... we um, I I with one of my friends, we we split on a cow or uh-huh. like or a portion of the cow, just so you have a better price per pound and things like that. So we had. I had all kinds of steaks and roasts and burger and things like that. So I'm just kind of working through that on my weekly basis. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So the bottom part of my, the, the, the fridge is just meal prep, yep. but the whole 90% of the freezer was just steaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you were finding little hidey holes for it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Jake, thanks again for your time. I, I think it's been Welcome. great sharing you sharing all of your experience with us. And I think there's some really nice lessons for, for other athletes and just a nice insight into the powerlifting side of things. So we wish you all the best with work as well as your Thank lifting you. perhaps post-Paris in particular and with the upcoming arrival of a new family member. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for your time as well. I think Jake's recent performance in Tokyo is a testament to both his persistence in trying to find the best weight category for him and his openness to exploring support mechanisms that can really get him to the highest level of his performance.
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. As usual, please leave us a message if you have any feedback, any suggestions on potential guests you'd like to hear, and feel free to share the podcast with your social media platforms. Join us next time when we talk to Joelle Fluick, who is a sports scientist and nutritionist in Switzerland.